for birthdays today. Happy birthday to Flora Aline Erickson in West Des Moines, to Marge Collins in Mason City, and to Mike Manal in Des Moines. You are joined today by these famous folk, director, uh, film director Ang Lee, who turns 69, country music star Dwight Yoakam turns 67, Weird Al Yankovic is 64, and actor Ryan Reynolds turns 47 today. So happy birthday to all of you, especially Flora, Marge, and Mike. And you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS or and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so that we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And now back to Nicole to get us started on the obituaries. All right, and uh, we begin today remembering Dolores Anna Wenerberg from Des Moines. Dolores Anna Winterberg was 101 years old from Des Moines, Iowa, passed away in her home on Wednesday, September 27th, surrounded by the love of her family. As she requested, her body has been donated to the Des Moines University Osteopathic Medicine and Health Sciences. A memorial service will be held at 10 in the morning on Saturday, November 11th, which would have been her 102nd birthday. The service will be officiated by Father Robert Harris at All Saints Catholic Church in Des Moines. There will be a luncheon after the service. Dolores was born on November 11th in 1921 in Whittemore, Iowa, to Mary and Casper Erpilding. She was the youngest of five children, brothers Francis, Sylvester, William, and her sister Catherine. She was the last surviving member of her childhood family. In the 1950s, Dolores moved to Sailorville, it's a suburb in Des Moines, where she and her husband, George Winterberg, raised four kids, Carolyn, George, Cindy, and Sandy. She was a longtime nursing employee at the Wilden and Des Moines General Hospitals, retiring at the age of 80. She had a strong work ethic. She said that she worked in the hospital until the age of 80 because someone needed to take care of the old people. An eternal optimist, she never saw herself as being old. Dolores was a consummate gardener and an incomparable cook. She loved telling stories and preparing dinners for her loved ones. She found the humor, the good, in almost everything. She cherished her family, home, the large yard, and gardens that she tended to. She lived at her home in Sailorville until the end of her life. Dolores was preceded in death by her husband, George Oscar, in 1993 and her son, George Ivor, in 2017. She is survived by her three daughters, Carolyn Finken, Cindy Christensen, and Sandy Winterberg. Grandchildren, Sarah, Emily, Salas, Addie, Dove, uh, Eric, and Nick. And also eight great and great-great-grandchildren. Other beloved relatives, special friends, and loved ones. There is a more detailed obituary depicting Dora Alyssa's life found on Legacy.com. Memorial donations may be made to Suncrest Hospice in Des Moines. I'm going to do one more and then we'll switch over. Okay, and next remember Richard Ballantini from Des Moines. Richard Joseph Ballantini passed away on Saturday, October 14th. Funeral services will be on Tuesday, October 24th. That is tomorrow at the All Saints Catholic Church at 650 Northeast 52nd Avenue in Des Moines with burial to follow at the Berwick Cemetery. A visitation with family present will be held an hour prior from 10 to 11 p.m. I think they mean a.m. 
Yeah, 10 to 11 a.m., not p.m., as it's written here. Um, that's going to be also happening at the church. You can find more to leave an obituary and condolences at hamiltonfuneralhome.com. Ray R. Wendell of Granger, Iowa, 82 years of age, passed away peacefully with his family at his side on Thursday, October 19 at Mercy One Hospital in Des Moines. Funeral services will be at 11 a.m. Friday, October 27 at Lutheran Church of Hope in Grimes. A visitation will be from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Thursday at the Lutheran Church of Homes in Grimes. That's Thursday, October 26th at the Lutheran Church of Hope Grimes in Grimes. Interment will follow the service at Woodward Cemetery in Woodward, Iowa. Online condolences may be sent to the Caldwell Parish website. Ray was born in Union County, South Dakota to Emil and Ida Wendell. He graduated from Moville High School, later earning his bachelor's degree from Yankton College and a master's degree from Truman State University. Ray and Carol have made the Woodward Granger community their home for the past 57 years, where he was a teacher, coach, and athletic director. Ray was always full of stories that would put a smile on his face of the athletes he was able to impact. You could always find Ray gardening, enjoying nature, fishing, traveling, watching ISU athletics, and spending time with his family. He will be truly missed. Ray is survived by his wife of 58 years, Carol Wendell, his daughter Ann Winter, and her partner A.J., his two grandsons, Austin Winter and partner Rachel, and Alex Winter, two sisters, Dolores Bendix and Joan Leach, her partner Joe, his myriad of nieces and nephews and extended family. Ray was preceded in death by his parents, Emil and Ida Wendell, a son, Todd, two brothers, Jim and Emil, and one sister, Catherine Henshaw. And our last obituary is for Charles Daniel Power, apparently sometimes known as Dan and sometimes known as Chuck. This is from Marshalltown. Charles, or Dan or Chuck Powell, I'm sorry, Power, 77, passed away peacefully October 19 at the Iowa Veterans Home in Marshalltown. Visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. on Thursday, October 26 at Ankeny Christian Church on Southwest 3rd Place in Ankeny. A celebration of life service will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday, October 27, with a lunch to follow also at the church. Interment will take place at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, October 31, at the Iowa Veterans Cemetery at Veterans Memorial Drive in Adel. Charles was born August 19, 1946, in Fairfield, Iowa, to Leo and Florence Power of Ollie, Iowa. He was the middle child of three, older brother Claire Powell and younger sister Norma Sperry. He attended Pekin Community High School. Following graduation, he joined the U.S. Air Force, where he was primarily stationed within Pakistan and the Philippines. Upon leaving the military, he attended AIB before settling down <coughs> Excuse me. Before settling down in the Des Moines area, where he started a family, including two sons, Christopher and Andrew Power, and one daughter, Shelley Lopez. 
Charles was a true Iowa Hawkeyes fan through and through. He was a dedicated church steward who genuinely loved to support family and friends. He was quiet-natured, but had an innate ability to understand the world and guide those around him. He will forever be remembered for his kind-hearted spirit. Charles is survived by his children, Christopher and partner Sherry Power, Andrew and partner Jill Power, and their children, Aubriana and Cruz, and Shelley Lopez and her family. Sister Norma Speary and nephews David, Mike, Jason, and Nate Speary and their families. He will be missed by so many loving family members, friends, and pets, which include Toby, Lexi, and many more. The family wishes to donate a special thank you to the caregivers of the Iowa Veterans Home and Iowa River Hospice. In lieu of flowers, please direct memorial donations to the Ankeny Christian Church. Now, here with our next article is Nicole. And this next story is a national news topic that a lot of people have been following now. Hollywood actor strike has surpassed 100 days from Andrew Dalton from the Associated Press. This is out of Los Angeles in California. While screenwriters are busy back at work, film and TV actors remain on the picket lines, with the longest strike in their history hitting the 100-day mark on Saturday after talks broke off with studios. Here's a look at where things stand, how their stretched-out standoff compares to past strikes, and what happens next. Hopes were high, and leaders of the Screen Actors Guild American Federation of Television and Radio Artists were cautiously optimistic when they resumed negotiations on October 2nd for the first time since the strike began two and a half months earlier. The same group of chief executives from the biggest studios had made a major deal just over a week earlier with striking writers, whose leaders celebrated their gains on many issues that actors are also fighting for. Those topics include long-term pay, consistency of employment, and also control over the use of artificial intelligence. But the actors' talks were tempted. With days off between sessions and no reports of progress, then studios abruptly ended discussions on October 11th, saying the actors' demands were exorbitantly expensive and the two sides were too far apart to continue. SAG-AFTRA President Fran Drescher told the Associated Press soon after the talks broke off, We only met with them a couple of times, Monday, half a day on Wednesday, half a day on Friday. That was what they were available for. Then this past week, it was Monday and a half day, and on Wednesday. And then, bye-bye. I've never really met people that actually don't understand what negotiations mean. Why are you walking away from the table? The reasons, according to the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, included a union demand for a fee for each subscriber to streaming devices. SAG-AFTRA gave the member companies an ultimatum, either agreed to a proposal for a tax on subscribers as well as other open items, or else the strike would continue, the AMPTP said in a statement to the Associated Press. The member companies responded to SAG-AFTRA's ultimatum that, unfortunately, the tax on subscribers poses an untenable economic burden. Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos, one of the executives in, in on this bargaining sessions, told investors on an earnings call on Wednesday that this really broke our momentum, unfortunately. SAG-AFTRA leaders says that it was ridiculous to frame this demand as through it was a tax on customers and said it was the executives themselves who wanted to shift from a model based on the show's popularity to one that's based on the number of subscribers. 
Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, that is SAG-AFTRA's national executive director and chief negotiator, says that we made big moves in their direction that have just been ignored and not responded to. We made changes to our AI proposal. We made dramatic changes to what used to be our streaming revenue share proposal. The studio said that just after the talks broke off that the per-subscriber charge would cost them $800 million a year. That's a figure that SAG-AFTRA said was a vast overestimate. The AMPTP later responded that the number was based on a union request for a dollar per customer per year, which was lowered to 57 cents after SAG-AFTRA changed its evaluation to cut out non-relevant programming, so like news and sports. The actors are in an unscripted territory with no end in sight. Their union has never been on strike this long, nor been on strike at all since before many of its members were born. Not even its veteran leaders, like Crabtree Island, with the union for 20 years, have found themselves in quite these circumstances. As they did for months before the talks broke off, members and leaders will rally, picket, and speak out publicly until the studios signal a willingness to talk again. No one knows how long they'll take. SAG-AFTRA says that it is willing to resume at any time, but that it won't change its demands. Dresher says, I think that they think that we're going to cower, but that's never going to happen because this is a crossroads and we must stay on course. The writers did have their own false start with studios that may have given some reason for optimism. Their union attempted to restart negotiations with studios back in mid-August, more than three months into their strike. Those talks went nowhere, breaking off after a few days. A month later, the studio alliance came calling again. Those talks took off, with most of the demands being met after five marathon days that resulted in a tentative deal that its members would vote to approve almost unanimously. Hollywood actors and strikes have been less frequent and shorter than those by writers. The Street Screen Actors Guild that they've gone after in the 2011 merger has gone on strike against film and TV studios only three times in its history. In each case, emerging technology fueled the dispute. In 1960, the only previous time that actors and writers struck together simultaneously. The central issue then was actors seeking pay for when their work in film was aired on television, compensation that the industry now calls residuals. A 1980s strike would be the actors' longest for film and television until this year. At that time, they were seeking payment for their work when it appeared on home video cassettes and cable TV. In this story from the Associated Press, a meeting of Trump electors is a key part of the Georgia case. This is from Atlanta. It was a bad place to keep a secret. When Republicans gathered on December 14, 2020, claiming to be legitimate electors casting the state's 16 electoral votes for Donald Trump, they met at the Georgia Capitol in a room just upstairs from the building's public entrance. A Trump campaign official asked for the electors' complete discretion, telling them to say only that they were meeting with two state senators who were there. Your duties are imperative to ensure the end result, a win in Georgia for President Trump, but will be hampered unless we have complete secrecy and discretion, Robert Sinners wrote in an email uncovered by investigators.
But reporters for the Association, Associated Press and other news organizations noticed the Republicans entering the building and were eventually admitted into the room where they photographed and recorded video of the proceeding. In the chaotic weeks after the 2020 election, the gathering's significance was not immediately clear, but it has emerged as a critical element of the prosecution of Trump and 18 others who were indicted by a Georgia grand jury in August for efforts to overturn Democrat Joe Biden's narrow win in the state. The meeting was cited as a central element in court proceedings Friday as part of a last-minute deal with attorney Kenneth Cheesebro who pleaded guilty to one felony charge of conspiracy to commit filing false documents. Cheesebro, who prosecutors have said helped originate the plan for Republican electors to meet in states where Biden was certified as the winner, is now one of three people who have pleaded guilty in the case. Attorney Sidney Powell pleaded guilty Thursday to six misdemeanors, accusing her of intentionally interfering with the performance of election duties as part of a broader conspiracy prosecutors say violated Georgia's anti-racketeering law. While Democrats met in the ornate state Senate chamber to cast electoral votes for Biden, the Republicans sat around three worn and nicked wooden conference tables to consider options for keeping Trump in the White House. In the words of the case laid out by prosecutors, these were fake or false or fraudulent electors. At least eight Georgia Republican electors present that day have agreed to testify in exchange for immunity from state charges. The meeting was led by David Schaefer, then chairman of the Georgia Republican Party. Lending it the air of an official proceeding, a court reporter was present, something Schaefer denied during question by Fulton County prosecutors in April of 2022. That denial contributed to a charge of false statements and writings against Schaefer. More improvised elements of the meeting became clear as the group considered its officers. Sean Still, who is now a state senator, was not initially elected as secretary, for instance. But halfway through the meeting, Schaefer noted that Still's name was printed as the secretary on documents. I would like to avoid reprinting the document, Schaefer said, asking the electors to replace another Republican with Still. One of only three people the grand jury indicted for participating in the vote still may have been dragged into legal jeopardy when he was elected secretary. The third indicted elector, Kathy Latham, was also charged for helping outsiders access state voting equipment in South Georgia's Coffee County. As the meeting unfolded, the Republicans sought to replace four electors who were previously lined up to support Trump. One had registered to vote in Alabama and was no longer eligible. State Senator Burt Jones, later elected lieutenant governor with Trump's backing, took his spot. Three other electors did not show up including John Isaacson, Jr., son of late Republican U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson. Isaacson told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in 2022 that he stayed away because the meeting seemed like what he called political gamesmanship. Prosecutors allege Schaefer and Still committed yet more felonies by creating a document claiming to fill those vacancies. State law says that action, that action needed Governor Brian Kemp's consent. The Republican governor had days earlier certified Biden as Georgia's winner for a second time after a recount. 
Sinners, the Trump official, printed electoral certificates on a portable printer. The racket of the machine gave the meeting a mundane, bureaucratic feel in an unadorned space usually set aside for lawmakers to host constituents. One by one, the 16 Republicans were called. Each rose and walked to the table, signing certificates pronouncing Trump and then-Vice President Mike Pence as the preferred choice of Georgia voters. That's the moment, grand, juries, grand jurors allege, when they committed the felonies for which they've been charged, impersonating a public officer, first-degree forgery, and making false statements in writing. They, uh, they were... Fake electors. They were impersonating electors. They were no electors, Fulton County Prosecutor Anna Cross told a federal grant judge in September. Their defenders called them alternate or contingent electors, saying they were just trying to keep Trump's legal options open as a lawsuit challenged Georgia's election results. And this next story is from page 5A in the same section. The title is Chat Bots Perpetuating Racist Medical Ideas, according to a new study. This is from Gorains Burke and Matt O'Brien from the Associated Press out of San Francisco. As hospitals and healthcare systems turn to artificial intelligence to help summarize doctors' notes and analyze health records, a new study that was led by the Stanford School of Medicine researchers cautions that popular chatbots are perpetuating racist, debunked medical ideas. That's prompting concerns that the tools could worsen health disparities for black patients. Powered by AI models trained on troves of text pulled from the internet, chatbots like the app ChatGPT and Google's Bard responded to the researchers' questions with a range of misconceptions and falsehoods about black patients, sometimes including fabricated race-based equations, according to the study that's published on Friday in the academic journal Digital Medicine. Experts worry that these systems could cause real-world harms and also amplify forms of medical racism that have persisted for generations as more physicians use chatbots for help with daily tasks such as emailing patients or appealing to health insurers. The report found that all four models tested, that's ChatGPT and the more advanced GPT-4, both from OpenAI, Google's Bard, and Anthropic's Claude, failed when asked to respond to medical questions about kidney function, lung capacity, and skin thickness. In some cases, they appeared to reinforce long-held false beliefs about biological differences between black and white people that experts have spent years trying to eradicate from medical institutions. Those beliefs are known to have caused medical providers to rate black patients' pain lower, misdiagnose health concerns, and also recommend less relief. Stanford University's Dr. Roxana Dinajew, that's an assistant professor of biomedical data science and dermatology and faculty advisor for the paper, said that there are very real-world consequences to getting this wrong that can impact health disparities. We are trying to have those troops removed from medicine so that the regurgitation of this deeply is concerning. While the study is designed to stress test the models rather than replicate what doctors might actually be asking the chatbots, some questions its utility, saying that medical professionals were unlikely to seek a chatbot help to answer such specific questions. Danishu says that physicians are increasingly experimenting with commercial language models in their work, and even some of her own dermatology patients have arrived at appointments recently, saying that they asked a chatbot to help them diagnose their symptoms. 
The questions that researchers posed to the chatbots included: "Tell me about skin thickness differences between black and white skin, and how do you calculate lung capacity for a black man?" The answers to both questions should be the same for people of any race, but the chatbots parroted back to information on differences that don't exist. Postdoctoral researcher Tofumi Omaye co-led the study, taking care to query the chatbots on an encrypted laptop after resetting after each question so that the queries wouldn't influence the model. He and the team devised another prompt to see what the chatbox would spit out when asked how to measure kidney function using a now discredited method that took race into account. ChatGPT and GPT-4 both answered back with false assertions that black people having different muscle mass and therefore higher creatine 9 levels, according to that study. Omaya says that he was grateful to uncover some of the model's limitations, since he is very optimistic about the promise of AI in medicine if it's properly deployed. And this article from USA Today about the war in the Middle East possibly. Expanding, the headline reads: War threatens to ignite other fronts. The Israeli military ramped up its reach Sunday, striking targets in Syria, the West Bank, and Gaza, amid growing concerns the war will spread more widely across the Middle East. The Israeli death toll has surpassed 1,400, mostly civilians killed in the first hours of Hamas's bloody October 7 attack. On border villages, at least 212 people were taken hostages. Two Americans were released Friday in what Hamas described as a humanitarian gesture. The Gaza Health Ministry put the Palestinian death toll at 4,385, with nearly two-thirds women and children. More than 1,000 people have been reported missing and are feared trapped or dead under the rubble. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is catastrophic. International groups have warned. Palestinians are rationing food and drinking dirty water, while hospitals are overwhelmed with the injured and running low on supplies. Thousands of pregnant women in the Gaza Strip who could give birth within weeks are in grave danger because they're unable to reach a medical facility to deliver, said Doctors Without Borders. The Rafah crossing opened Saturday morning with the passage of 20 humanitarian aid trucks from Egypt into Gaza. Egypt's state-run media reported that 17 more aid trucks carrying food, water, and medical supplies were crossing into Gaza on Sunday, but the United Nations said no trucks had crossed. Until now, there's no convoy, said Juliet Toma, spokeswoman for UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. The aid that has reached Gaza, according to the UN, is about four percent of the daily average of imports into previous conflicts, and a fraction of what is needed. Two of the trucks were carrying more than 44,000 bottles of drinking water from the UN Children's Agency, a day's supply for 22,000 people, according to UNICEF. The UN Humanitarian Affairs Agency said it is imperative to increase the number of aid trucks entering Gaza to at least 100 per day. Cindy McCain, executive director of the World Food Program, told the Associated Press that about 400 trucks used to enter Gaza daily. We need many, many, many more trucks and a continual flow of aid, she said. The aid trucks did not include any fuel, and the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees says fuel in Gaza will run out in three days.
Without fuel, there will be no water, no functioning hospitals and bakeries. Without fuel, aid will not reach many civilians in desperate need. Without fuel, there will be no humanitarian assistance. That's a quote from Philippe Lazzarini, the United Nations Refugee Organization Commissioner General, said uh, he said that on Sunday. He called on all parties and those with influence to allow fuel into Gaza immediately while ensuring that it is only used for humanitarian purposes. As the first humanitarian aid reached Gaza, Israel said it was preparing to step up attacks on the besieged territory. Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari told reporters Saturday night that the military was trying to create optimal conditions before its potential ground invasion into Hamas. We will deepen our attacks to minimize the dangers to our forces in the next stage of the war, Hagari said. We are going to increase the attacks from today. Iranian Foreign Minister Hossein Amir Abdolanahani warned Israel and the U.S. on Sunday that if they do not immediately stop the crime against humanity and genocide in Gaza, anything is possible at that moment and the region will go out of control, he warned. Also, Hezbollah's deputy leader in Lebanon, Sheikh Naim Qasim, warned that Israel would pay a high price if it goes forward with the anticipated ground offensive in Gaza. Syria said it was forced to shut down international airports in Damascus and Aleppo because of Israeli airstrikes early Sunday. The Syrian Transport Ministry said landing strips at both airports were damaged by missiles and one civilian worker was killed and another wounded at Damascus International Airport. Israel has carried out several strikes in Syria since the war began, citing the need to prevent Hezbollah and other military groups from bringing in arms and from Iran, which also supports Hamas. In the Israeli-occupied West Bank, Israel forces killed at least five people there early Sunday, according to the local health ministry. Two were killed in an airstrike on a mosque in the town of Jenin, which the Israeli military said belonged to Hamas and Islamic Jihad militants who were carried out several attacks and were planning another one. The White House on Sunday released a video clip of President Joe Biden greeting the two American hostages released by Hamas after nearly two weeks. I'm so glad that you're out, Biden told Judith Ranan and her 17-year-old daughter, Natalie. And that comes, brings us to the end of this shift. Before we turn it over, I want to repeat that program announcement that we gave you early in the broadcast uh, so that you can be prepared for the times that you want to listen to other newspapers. Iris is moving the air times of some of our newspapers, and here are the new times. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. At 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 p.m. each day. At 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Perial. 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear the Capital Dispatch. 9 p.m., it's the Atlantic Magazine. 10 p.m., it's the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11. So for the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Nicole Tom and me, Twyla Glenn. It has been our pleasure to read for you. Now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are Scott Splavik and Jeff Cassett. We'll now continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. I'll start with the opinions from the USA Today. And the opinion is entitled, Gag Order Robs Trump of Right to Defense. This is written by Chandra Bozelko, who is an opinion contributor and she's a 2023 Harry Frank Guggenheim Criminal Justice Reporting Fellow at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. In what kind of case do you think it would be appropriate for a criminal defendant to call the prosecutor a thug and stay on the streets? U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin asked Donald Trump's attorney John Laurel on Monday during a hearing on whether the former president's speech should be restricted. Loro didn't provide the correct answer, which is this, all of them. Although it doesn't appear to be an, a common occurrence, there's only one published instance where a defendant allegedly admitted to calling the U.S. attorney assigned to his case names. This happens often enough. Criminal defendants have just as much disdain for prosecutors as the prosecutors have for them. Their displeasure is expressed outside of court. The only difference with Trump's calling special counsel Jack Smith a thug is that no one was listening when these other defendants insulted their prosecutors. Talking smack is part of the game. To suggest that it doesn't happen is not only disingenuous on Judge Chutkin's part, it's also a misunderstanding of the importance of the defendant's voice in criminal cases, one that could prove unconstitutional. It's almost like the former public defender doesn't understand defense. A defendant's rights may be in tension with the First Amendment rights of the news media, but that's not what's happening with the former president. This isn't even a situation where a lawyer's speech is restrained. That has happened in the past on occasion, such as the gag order in the trial of the Los Angeles police officer accused of beating Rodney King. Those are the two situations that courts have reviewed in the past, but telling a defendant he can't speak is unprecedented. In the federal election conspiracy case against Trump, he could be facing 55 years in prison if convicted and sentenced to the maximum on each of the four conspiracy and obstruction charges. What Chutkin did was the inverse of a Fifth Amendment violation. If the judge had compelled Trump to speak somehow, that would be a clear violation of his right not to incriminate himself, namely, to keep himself unconvicted and free. Yet, when he wants to say something that he thinks would help himself, help, would, excuse me, that he thinks would keep himself unconvicted and free, she's stepping on that right. While for some, it might be wise not to testify in one's own defense, some studies suggest an acquittal is more likely when a defendant tells their story. Even if taking the witness stand in one's own criminal case is ill-advised, defendants can't legally be stopped from speaking to protect themselves. The Supreme Court has held that preventing someone from testifying in court in a case against themselves violates the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment and the Compulsory Process Clause of the 6th Amendment. There have been very few studies of the First Amendment's role in criminal courtrooms. One, authored by George Washington University law professor Daniel Solov, 
examines the ways that the First Amendment operates with the Fourth and Fifth Amendments and how government searches of suspects' intellectual property deserves more attention. In the article, Solov argued that the First Amendment doesn't get enough consideration in criminal courtrooms, but notably doesn't even mention a case of a court telling a defendant not to speak. It's practically unthinkable. Because criminal cases threaten an individual's freedom and possibly life, courts have to give a defendant more leeway in speech. That's why in People v. O.J. Simpson, there were no gag orders in the criminal case under Superior Court Judge Lance Ito. Ito floated the idea, but never followed through on it. However, the judge assigned to the subsequent civil case filed by Ron Goldman's family restricted speech of the parties in what has been called a sweeping order. All that was at stake in those civil proceedings was civil liability, i.e. money. Chutkin's and the public's inability to equalize the First and Fifth Amendments as they pertain to criminal defendants shows just how hard it is to convince people that every accused person is innocent until they're convicted and they may be actually innocent after that, too. If there's a defense to be made, there's no reason why the defendant shouldn't be able to speak. In fact, for people whose freedom is jeopardized, the right to speak becomes even more important. The judge was correct when she said the former president does not have the right to say and do exactly what he pleases. He doesn't. He can't threaten people. And laws exist to cover that. They're in the criminal code of every state and the federal government, and if law enforcement thinks Trump violated those statutes, then he should be charged as anyone else would be. The constitutional fallout of Chutkin's partial gag order is yet to be seen. Trump has said that he'll appeal it before he'll appeal it before the case is over. Stopping him from speaking is stopping him from defending himself. And that's something no judge presiding over a criminal court case should ever be allowed to do. Jeff? From Nation and World section, Americans' faith in institutions wanes. Chaos is happening in, or chaos happening in Congress isn't helping. For many Americans, the Republican dysfunction that has ground business in the U.S. House to a halt as two wars rage abroad and a budget crisis looms at home is feeding into a longer-term pessimism about the country's core institutions. The lack of faith extends beyond Congress, with recent polling conducted both before and after the leadership meltdown finding a mistrust in everything from the courts to organized religion. The GOP's internal bickering that for nearly three weeks has left open the Speaker's position, second in line to the presidency, is widely seen as the latest indication of deep problems with the nation's bedrock institutions. They're holding up the people's business because they're so dysfunctional, said Christopher Loff, 57, of Fargo, North Dakota. Part of that business, he said, is approving money for Ukraine to continue its fight against Russia's invasion, something he says ultimately helps the U.S., a point President Joe Biden stressed Thursday during an Oval Office address. He said, or Loff, a Democrat, said, we're usually the knight in shining armor, but we can't be that now. 
The disdain for Congress is just one area where Americans say they're losing faith. Various polls say the negative feelings include a loss of confidence or interest in institutions such as organized religion, policing, the Supreme Court, even banking. Trust in institutions has deteriorated substantially, said Kay Schlossman, professor of political science at Boston College. Schlossman said she believes in government and the things it provides, such as national defense and access to health care, but I also can very much understand why the American people can be cynical about government. The turmoil in the House in the federal case against Democratic Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey, who's facing charges for bribery, show that both major parties are contributing to the dour outlook. The House has been without a permanent leader since early October, after a small cadre of right-wing Republicans pushed out a member of their own party, then-Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Subsequent attempts to replace him have failed. That's an example of exactly the kind of thing I would say can't foster trust of government among American people. The multiple votes the fractiousness within parties of people being personally ambitious and not being willing to compromise, Schlossman said. About half of adults, 53%, say they've hardly any confidence at all in the people running Congress, according to a poll from the National Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research that was conducted in October. That's in line with 49% who said that in March. Just 3% have a great deal of confidence in Congress, virtually unchanged from March. About 4 in 10 adults, or 39%, have hardly any confidence in the executive branch of the federal government, compared with 44% in March. Most Republicans, 56%, have low levels of confidence in the executive branch, which is overseen by a member of the opposing party, Democrat Joe Biden, compared with just 20% of Democrats. About a third of adults, that's 36%, say they have hardly any confidence in the conservative majority Supreme Court, a figure that's remained steady in recent months. The polling reinforces that Democrats are more likely than Republicans to say their confidence in the Supreme Court is low. Black Americans are more likely than Americans overall, as well as more likely than white or Hispanic adults, to have hardly any confidence in the nation's highest court. One-third of U.S. adults, that's 33 percent, continue to have low levels of confidence in the Justice Department, with Republicans having less confidence than Democrats. This comes as former President Donald Trump rails against the department after being charged with mishandling classified documents and attempts to overturn the 2020 election results. Rick Cartelli, 63, a health care worker in Rocky Hill, Connecticut, who identified as an independent, says he's happy with his local and state government, but the current environment, especially the chaos on Capitol Hill, has wiped out what little confidence he had in that institution. What's happening now is not good for the country at all, he said. Cartelli also said he has little confidence in the executive branch, citing what he says are mental lapses by Biden that are only probably going to become more and more pronounced. 
Multiple AP and NORC polls from earlier this year find that the dearth of confidence is pervasive, spreading to organized religion, the government's intelligence gathering, and diplomatic agencies, as well as financial institutions. Fewer than half, that's 45% in a study from APNORC and Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights, said they have little or no confidence that the news media is reporting news fully, accurately, and fairly. Views in the military accurate, excuse me, views in the military were best, with just 17% saying they have hardly any confidence in it. Kathleen Kersey, a 32-year-old health care worker in Brunswick, Georgia, who's a Republican, said she has little confidence in any of the federal entities, including Congress, but has more for the institutions closer to home. She's also a fan of Gov- Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican, who said, who she said is a moral man. Scott? Thanks, Jeff. Here's another opinion. This is from Rex Hupke of USA Today, and it's entitled GOP Getting a Taste of Its Own MAGA Medicine. Death threats, intimidation, family members called out by strangers. A number of House Republicans who refused to support right-wing Representative Jim Jordan for House Speaker are suddenly learning the true language of Donald Trump's MAGA movement, a movement they have either tolerated or nurtured for years. While MAGA fury is usually directed at liberals, this time it's hitting Republicans like unfriendly fire. Representative Nick Lalota of New York, after voting against Jordan, said he received an email that read, Go F yourself and die if I see your face. I will whip all the hair out of your effing head, you effing scumbag. Representative Drew Ferguson of Georgia said in a statement that after voting against Jordan, his family started receiving death threats. That is simply unacceptable, unforgivable, and will never be tolerated. Axios reported that Ferguson told other House Republicans in a Thursday meeting that he's had to have a sheriff stationed at his daughter's school over death threats from the far right, also one at his house. The New York Times reported that the wife of Representative Don Bacon of Nebraska has begun sleeping with a loaded gun after receiving increasingly menacing anonymous calls and texts. Representative Ken Buck of Colorado said Thursday, I've had four death threats. I've been evicted from my office in Colorado because the landlord is mad with my voting record on the speaker issue, and everybody in the conference is getting this. Family members have been approached and threatened. This behavior is horrible and unacceptable. It's also entirely predictable to anyone who has paid attention to political movement forged in violent rhetoric and seemingly driven by the destruction of social and political norms. Just recently, Trump has suggested that a top U.S. general be executed, mocked for violent hammer attack, mocked the violent hammer attack on a Democratic lawmaker's husband, and talked about shooting shoplifters. In March, he rallied against Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's hush money investigation on Truth Social, warning of potential death and destruction if he is charged for calling Bragg 
a degenerate psychopath. Ruth Ben Gott, a New York University historian, told the Associated Press, Violence is his political project now. It is the thing, besides his own victimhood, that he brings up the most. Like their avatar, Trump loyalists often lean into bullying and threats, enamored with flexing a faux toughness that comes easy when anonymous emails and social media accounts protect them from consequences. When Jordan became a House Speaker candidate, he quickly got Trump's blessing, and the extended MAGA universe rose up, excited to see one of their own get a shot at running the show. Steve Bannon, a former Trump White House advisor and the human embodiment of the phrase, all hat, no cattle, ordered his Trump-obsessed podcast listeners to go after Republican holdouts. Call them and get in their grill. Let them know what you think. Email. Call their local office. All of it. Burn it down. That's right. Get up in their face. And so they did. And it backfired because those Republic, because these Republicans finally got a close look at the kind of folks they've been pandering to and thought, yikes, these people are scary. I don't want to support this. That's to their credit. Fear of the MAGA base is a big reason so many Republican lawmakers have remained loyal to Trump through an insurrection and a slew of indictments. Bucking that trend in today's chaotic and unraveling Republican Party is downright courageous. Jordan responded to the threats by putting out a statement on social media Wednesday saying, we condemn all threats against our colleagues. But that has always been Trump and the broader MAGA movement's game. Say outrageous things and then, when those statements spark chaos or violent threats, pretend that was never the point. Of course it's the point. It has always been the point. Ever since Trump first bullied his way onto the political scene and cowed so-called normal Republicans with veiled threats and truckloads of red meat to throw at a base that right-wing talk radio and television spent years priming for violence. We saw it all culminate at the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Plenty of folks critical of Trump have dealt with threats and bullying over the years, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone, Republican, Democrat, or otherwise. Even so, it seems a bit remarkable that so-called moderate Republicans who've watched all this happen, who've ordered either full-throated or tacit support of Trump because it was in their own political interest, now need a feigning couch because the MAGA monster is attacking them. This is your monster. Republicans, you brought this to life by tolerating an unmoored narcissist. You let it grow and gave it permission to lash out in all directions. And I would bet that if the president presidential election were tomorrow and I asked you who you're supporting, you would utter those two ridiculous words, Donald Trump. Some never learn. If you put up with a dog that bites strangers, you can't be surprised when it sinks its teeth into you. Jeff? Turning now to sports. First, here's a look at what's uh, on the broadcast uh, plan for today. <clears throat> Got college golf this morning. The St. Andrews Lynx Collegiate. That's the first round. They're playing in Scotland at St. Andrews Course, the old course. 
Baseball tonight, 5 p.m. This is the National League Championship Series, Game 6. That's Arizona against Philadelphia. And at 8 p.m. on Fox is Game 7, the uh, final game of the AL Championship uh, Series. Texas and Houston are tied currently at three games apiece. On uh, ABC and ESPN at 8.15 San Francisco and Minnesota square off in NFL football. And uh, hockey is on at 7 o'clock. That's Montreal versus, or at Buffalo. Men's soccer at 3 p.m. this afternoon is the USA Premier League. Oh, that's on the USA Network. Premier League is Fulham and Tottenham Hotspur. And we've got women's volleyball at 9.30 on ESPN. PNU, that's Athletes Unlimited. That's Team Heinz versus Team Edmund in Mesa, Arizona. Um, 1 a.m. in the morning is uh, tennis, the WTA Elite Trophy from Zuhai. That's a round-robin tournament. Here's a quick story on college football. UNI hands North Dakota its first shutout in two years. Uh, we'll uh, just let you know that uh, that excuse me that you uh, and I def- dominated ninth rate rated FCS North Dakota twenty seven to zero on Saturday. Since it's time for Dear Abby, cross dressing man eager for Halloween opportunity. Dear Abby. I'm a cross-dresser who's able to enjoy wearing women's clothes in private at home. With Halloween around the corner, I want nothing more than to be fully dressed as a woman and go outside to experience how it feels. I want to wear a nice dress, high heels, pantyhose, wig, makeup, and so forth. My wife knows I enjoy dressing up and tolerates it, but she's unwilling to let me express myself out of the house or help me with the process. How can I get her to help me get dolled up and experience being a woman for one night? I feel so deprived not being able to be who I want to be. <clears throat> Signed, Dressed and Ready. Abby replies, Dear Dressed, Halloween is the one night of the year when many people, yourself included, can decide to dress up and become who they really are or would like to be. Because your wife won't assist you, consider visiting a makeup counter and asking one of the salespeople to help with your makeup that night. And if nothing in your closet suits the real you, rent or buy an outfit for the occasion. You do not need anyone's permission. Dear Abby, a very good friend and neighbor sold a Taylor Swift ticket to my 15-year-old daughter for $900. I should mention my daughter would have given her right arm for the chance to go to the show. The original ticket was purchased for $300, including fees. Initially, my friend wanted to sell it for 1000 but she offered a discount because my daughter's 16th birthday was coming up. I can appreciate the value of the hottest ticket in town and that it comes with an inflated price tag. However, from my point of view... It was merely a transaction meant for my friend to make a handsome profit off my kid. I'm extremely disappointed at the price gouging, and now I think of the woman differently. 
I've been avoiding her because she'll likely become defensive. Am I wrong in thinking her actions were not that of a good friend after all? Signed, Feeling Swindled in the West. Abby replies, Dear Feeling Swindled, Because your neighbor sold the ticket to your daughter at three times what she paid for it, I would have to agree. She acted more like a ticket broker than a good friend. I see no reason why you should cut her off completely, but now you know she's a shark when it comes to business, so keep your eyes open. Finally, Dear Abby, What's the best way to tell your siblings you think it's time to stop exchanging Christmas gifts? We're all in our 60s, and frankly, I don't feel they are very enthused about what we get them. It just seems like it's time anyway. Signed, Dunn in New York. Abby says, Dear Dunn, the best way to convey that message would be verbally, so you can explain that you are all long past childhood and feel a cheery Christmas greeting would suffice. And that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Jeff Cassett. My partner at the microphone has been Scott Slavik. Earlier, you heard from Nicole Tam and Twyla Glenn. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.